It was during the pandemic. I was in a high stress, high pressure technology sales job. And I was in our team's quarterly business review, which I always dreaded. I was really scared that I wasn't prepared enough and had to manage to feign interest for a full eight hours over Zoom of not only mine, but our whole team's initiatives. And we had a mercurial boss and our boss was throwing jabs of humiliation, little slights, sarcastic remarks. His general frustration was impossible to hide. And when that happened, I froze. I couldn't offer feedback. And this was weird for me. Like I can use my voice. I can speak up for myself, but here it was a different story. It just wasn't psychologically safe. And if you're not familiar with psychological safety, it is the belief that you won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. It's been a big buzzword, but culturally, it's now a requirement that companies and teams are attempting to create. But how? So I invited the CEO of Numi Coach Directory and Zarango. Numi is spelled N-O-O-M-I-I. And the CEO's name is Stefan Wiedner. And I invited him on to discuss why it's critical to our evolving work landscape, but also how leaders and employees can advocate for a better, healthier workplace where people feel free to speak their mind, but you can move forward together. And man, I wish I knew this when I was in that toxic work environment. So I want you to think of three friends right now who might be frustrated at work and text this episode to them right now. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear all Culture Changers episodes ad-free, get bonus content and behind-the-scenes stuff, and help me continue to produce this show. It is always free for you to listen to, but certainly not free for me to make. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash culture changers. And if you're interested in my more personal journal and be being on the ride with me, I send out a weekly email on Thursdays that has been a favorite that I get a ton of very passionate feedback. You can sign up at allisonhair.com. Here's my chat with Stefan Wiedner of Numi and Zarango. All right, I'm excited about this. We are here with Stefan Wiedner. He is the CEO of Numi and a, a specialist in psychological safety, a topic I could not think is more important to talk uh, about today. Welcome, Stefan. Thank you for having me, Allison. Can you help define what is psychological safety? Well, psychological safety is a belief. First of all, we'll start there. So it's a belief within each of the members of a team that within that team, they can speak up, say what's on their mind, express concerns, etc. So a team with a high degree of psychological safety will, on average, have all of their members believing that it is true that they can speak up and say what's on their mind without any fear of reprimand. So they're not going to fear their job. They're not going to fear that they'll be made fun of or that people will criticize them. And that's what psychological safety is. So why, how did you get into this? Why is it so important to you? Well, for many years now, well over a decade, I've been in the world of uh, coaching. And so we've been conducting a lot of different coaching engagements across organizations. And almost always the manager 
is, or the leader, whoever's going through that coaching experience is trying to improve their soft skills in some capacity and improve their impact as leaders. And I was really looking for some form of data that we could use to measure the efficacy of the coaching. I wanted to know, is this manager or leader improving their skills? And I thought a great way to do that is to measure psychological safety. So that's that was the... How do you quantify that? How do you measure a soft skill? <laughs> right. Well, psychological safety is measured very easily with seven questions. So Amy Eminson, who's the... Uh, who's a professor at Harvard. She is really popularizing the term and she developed this seven question assessment you administer to your team. And there you go. You have, you have a measure out of a score out of a hundred and it's um, it's easy to administer. It's also robustly tested, right? This is something her, her survey, she's uh, developed it and used it in many different settings. And it is actively measuring the construct of psychological safety. So um, I think it's quite simple to measure. <laughs> and and that's what I was looking for. I was looking for a way to measure the effectiveness of this leader, at least maybe not the skills themselves, but the outcome of those improved skills. Mm. So what I think is interesting about this, so I, um, I, I don't think you may know this about me, but I left my corporate job in April of this year to pursue the podcast to pursue all these creative things that I've had. But my my final few years in the corporate world where I worked for Fortune 500 companies, I've had really great bosses and awful bosses. And in fact, on one of the exit interviews that where I left, I did not I did not feel psychologically safe enough to even give an honest feedback. Um, and it was the the leader was so intensely <laughs> not the right leader for me, but it seems like there is kind of the old way of doing things, which is kind of the hustle culture. You know, you shut up, you do your job. As long as you're, you know, producing and you're doing what you're supposed to do, you're hitting your numbers, whatever that might be, then the boss is going to leave you alone. But if you don't, you're going to get micromanaged and cranked. Now that the pandemic is hit and people are working hybrid how do you help an organization? How do you help kind of shift the leadership strategies and styles that are required? Because it seems like it's such a multifaceted, multi-layered change that needs to start. Where does it, where do you even start? Great question. And there's a couple different points that were sort of layered into your comments and your questions there. So I want to address the first one, which is uh, regarding the, the remote work and how that's really changed the workplace. And yeah. initially when I, when we were maybe two months into, uh, COVID and the lockdown and the uncertainty and everything, if we can go back in time, roughly two years. And I reached out to a colleague of mine who is in an organization. He's in the HR slash learning and development uh, department. And he informally just interviewed a about a dozen or two dozen managers in his organization. And he was specifically asking the question, how's your team doing? And what he found out is that in his assessment, informal in as it was, that the, uh, the results were bimodal. He had a group of managers that when he asked them the question, how's your team? They said, gee, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And then the other half said, yeah, they're really stressed and it's stressing me out because they're asking me what's going to happen. How, what does this mean for our jobs? Are we going to go back to work? And I don't have answers, so I don't know how to deal with it. So 
that for him was a significant uh, realization that half of his managers had psychological safety and the other half didn't. So the managers who didn't know how their teams were doing, he believed those folks who were in fact dealing with all sorts of stress and anxiety were not expressing it to that manager. And so as managers, we have to know that a critical symptom of psychological safety or rather a lack thereof is silence, is agreement, is just complacency that like, no, things are fine, right? So uh, one realization I think that most organizations has, has uh, really um, embraced with COVID is that Work life and home life are starting to blend and merge, especially when people are working from home, right? And suddenly they have kids running in the background. They have pets that they need to deal with. They, they um, have anxiety and stress that they couldn't, you know, they can't go out in the community and they can't go work out. And they, people were suddenly not able to undertake various actions within their days to reduce stress and anxiety. And so it was mounting. And of course, it was affecting work. And so... Uh, as managers and leaders, I think one of the things that we need to do is connect with our people, simply connect with them so that they feel safe to be able to say, you know what, I'm feeling really stressed. I'm not necessarily looking for you to give me an answer right now, but this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. If you're not hearing your people on those matters, then you don't have psychological safety. They're just not telling you. It's not that they are feeling 100%. It's that they're not telling you. So if that's not part of the culture today, where does that start? Is that a top-down approach? Is it something where as an employee, you need to manage up, you know, like how, what is the, what is the most effective way to start changing the culture within an organization to provide that? We've seen, you can start at the bottom, work up, you can start in the middle and work in either direction or start from the top and go down. I think strategies, there are strategies for all three and all three can work. However, I have a bias and I believe that starting from the top down is ideal. What you want is, and we've seen this in organizations that we've worked with, when the leader of the organization is setting the stage, setting the tone and modeling the behavior that you want to see within the organization, then others follow. And plus that leader can set the mandate for specific training, for support and around the concept of psychological safety. So the more that the leadership can take a stand for psychological safety in the organization and model the behavior. So it's not enough to just say, we believe in psychological safety. Now go and do your work and don't, don't challenge me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it's hard though. I think it's hard, especially, so I live in Atlanta and you know, I've, I've met with companies in the South that are family owned, very set in their ways, you know, kind of old school about not all of them, of course, but it seems to be more prevalent here. And, you know, if you're working at one of those companies and don't feel like you have a voice, I'm wondering, you know, how, how does somebody have agency or gain agency with it? Um, is it volunteering? I'm stressed today, or I have a lot on my plate, or how can I help? Like, well, how would you coach somebody that doesn't really feel like they have psychological safety and, but really feels the strain? Mm, that's a really good question because I think a lot of people find themselves in that situation, right? Where yeah. they don't feel that safety and that security. And so what I would um, advocate, what we see is that 
Uh, first of all, I'll start with a different definition of psychological safety. I already gave you a definition. We use one that I think yeah. is a little bit more practical uh, that a lot of people seem to really appreciate, which is we say it's the courage to speak up and the confidence to know you'll be heard. So you're asking me when you're not feeling that courage to speak up, what, what do you do? How do you handle that? And, mm-hmm. and if you recall or imagine anytime someone's protesting, for example, uh, they have the courage to speak up, but they don't have the confidence that they're being heard. That's why they feel like they have to grab a megaphone and, and yell it mm-hmm. <laughs> really loudly. So uh, in, within an organization, I would advise people to improve their skills at being able to speak up in a way that is non-threatening in a way that is um, trying to open up that door of communication and understanding so that's the way i guess i would go about what would be an example what what did that what would be a, a, a example question an example question or example comment would be one where yeah yeah, sure. Where you're sharing information. The idea is um, often I think we see a spectrum of communication. There's at one end avoidance, so you don't say anything. And then at the other end, you're calling someone out or you're really trying to point the finger. And in, in between that, right. that either passive aggressive or actively aggressive, it doesn't even yeah. have to be passive. It could be <laughs> right. just, it could be aggressive. You know, you're, you're saying, Hey, uh, you're criticizing others. And that's, of course, going to just lead to a lot of defensiveness. So I would try to find that middle ground where you're trying to shine a light on the issue and doing so from a non, um, you're not trying to point the finger. You're just trying to bring curiosity to it. And so if, for example, um, and, and the other strategy is to talk about how it's affecting you and you're not what your interpretations are and not, Hey, this is the way things are. So rather than saying, this is a stressful environment, you say, I'm feeling stressed in this environment. See that there's a slightly different uh, uh, connotation there. One is a declarative statement and one is a statement about your reaction to the environment. Mm. And so that's where I would go to work. First of all, try to find an ally or the, the manager or the person with whom you feel you can most comfortably express yourself, ask for some time. And then in that time, uh, try to point out what you feel is the issue or the concern that you have in that environment without trying to criticize anybody or the organization or the team, etc. Is that helpful? Love, it is. I love the thought of, of coming with curiosity. And one thing I thought was interesting about um, the corporations today and something that was was in the information that I read about you is, you know, there's a lot of talk. It's a buzzword to have diversity and inclusion, but I think it's shifting from inclusion to belonging. And that, especially if you're on zoom or hybrid, that is a, that is like ninja Jedi master stuff. (laughs) How do you move from one end to the other? Ah, it's so subtle. What we, what we know is that, um, there is a way of communicating in a way that is accepting and of, and you demonstrate understanding of people and in particular their differences. So I remember the seven questions I mentioned that are used to assess psychological safety. One of them is all about 
well, I'll read it to you. It's my unique skills yeah, and can talents. Can you read me those seven of them? I would love to hear what those questions are. Uh, yeah, sure. Now, when the seven questions are asked, they're, some are asked in the positive and some are asked in the negative. Um, I've rearranged them so that they're all in the positive. In other words, you want to get a positive answer hmm. for all seven of these questions. So I'll, I'll read the first one to you. If you make a mistake on this team, it is not held against you. Number two, people on this team always accept others for being different. Is this like a scale of one to 10 where people rate this? It's a seven point Likert scale. Okay. So uh, plus three being I very much agree, minus three being I very much disagree, and then of course four being neutral. So that one, people on this team always accept others for being different. That is a measure of diversity and inclusion and as you said, belonging. Yes. Um, it is easy to ask other members of this team for help. I think I've answered all these questions at my corporate jobs too. (laughs) Probably they were likely weaved in, um, perhaps in a broader employee engagement survey, right? right? Where you answered maybe 50 or a hundred questions. Yeah. Members of this team are able to bring up problems and tough issues. So that's about the level of open communication that you feel. So that was the one that you're asking about, right? So if you yeah, don't yeah. feel that, how do you come and open up? Um, it is safe to take a risk on this team. That one's kind of interesting. Why is risk taking associated with psychological safety? Well, wouldn't it be if you had ideas to make it better? Or like, is, is, that, is it safe to speak up and offer ideas and feel heard? whether or not it's taken or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big difference. You know, that's a big deal um, to be able to speak up and offer solutions that may or may not have been entertained before. I also think there's a big uh, difference between how risk is evaluated and assessed because you might have a legal team and their tolerance for risk is probably really low Yes, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. Their, in their work, right? And then you have some innovative team that's coming up with the next big innovative project, right? Their Mm -hmm. tolerance for risk and failure is likely to be much different. And so how they answer this question might be significantly different. And uh, I I always find that kind of interesting. Uh, Question number six, no one on this team would deliberately act in a way that undermines my efforts. So that's, uh, I'd say, loosely measuring trust, right? How well do you trust the other people on your team? And then the last one, my unique skills and talents are valued and utilized by members of this team. So there we're pointing to that diversity and inclusion again, right? It's not just that I feel accepted, but people are leveraging my unique qualities and skills. Yes. So I think it's very interesting that we have two out of the seven questions, which are almost directly pointing to diversity and inclusion and Mm -hmm. the feeling of belonging. So what was the question about belonging again? How you move from inclusion to belonging. So if you're right. included, you're on teams, you're on this kind of stuff. At some point, you, you know, how do you accomplish having somebody feel like they belong and are invested in the team? And it's not just a paycheck where they're frustrated or not heard or feel like, you know, they're punching the clock and they're doing what they need to do. You know, there has to be some type of shift from that included to belonging. And what does that mean to you? Yeah. So I'll go back. I'll give you a background into uh, some of the research that we've looked into. So we've explored 
a lot of research in counseling because, as I mentioned, we have a long background in coaching and we've been trying to understand why does coaching work? What's the, what's the active ingredient, if you will? And there's not nearly as much research in coaching as there is in counseling. And yet there's a ton of parallel between those two professions. And so what they've looked at and what they've concluded in counseling is that there's a bunch of different types of counselors with different methodologies and different frameworks that they apply within their practice. And among all of those different uh, verticals, if you will, within counseling, there's always good performers. And the researchers asked, well, what's what's common among all of those top performing counselors? And they concluded that there's this thing that's sometimes called common factors or what we refer to as FIS, facilitative interpersonal skills. And facilitative interpersonal skills roughly measures your ability to have empathy for the other person and this ability to actively go towards interpersonal challenges and and uh, ruptures. So within Ooh, counseling, that sounds so juicy, <laughs> doesn't it? So within yes. within counseling, anybody can have relatively good outcomes if you work with a demographic that's easy to deal with. You can relate to them. You know, they look and feel and sound like you. Throw in a bunch of clients that are significantly different in their backgrounds, their worldviews, their perspectives. It gets a lot more challenging, right? And that's what diversity and inclusion is all about. And so the best counselors are able to communicate in ways that they are accepting of the other person. They don't have to agree with them. They don't have to want to live like them, but to accept them and understand them is a skill that the best counselors all have. And taking that knowledge and that uh, research, we're applying in the business world because what we see is the skills of a manager and a manager that can create a psychologically safe environment are much the same. You need to be able to see other people's differences and accept them. You don't have to agree with them, but accept them. And so it comes down to very subtle communication. For example, you might ask someone a question like, well, why didn't you do it like this? And see how my tone is subtle and it's, it's, I'm leading with judgment. Like, why didn't yes. you do it like this? Right? right. And I can ask the same question with exact same words in a way that says, Hmm, why didn't you do it like that? Where maybe there's a little less judgment there. I'm, it's much more of an open-ended question. And I think if you're constantly viewing your skills around accepting and understanding others' differences, then the words will be slightly different too, where you'll use the right words, you use the right tone, and you're constantly accepting others for their differences. And the beauty with these subtle skills that I'm talking about is that they can be assessed and measured. And they can be assessed and measured with relatively small amounts of data. Uh, and so are you familiar with the work by uh, John Gottman, Years ago, it was sort of popularized that John Gottman could listen to a couple disputing various things within their relationship and predict divorce with a high level of accuracy, ninety five percent. Did you come across that stat? Did you I haven't. Heard? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I think picture it's cool. that, right? That also yeah. Is Jedi, Jedi tricks. Yeah, that's total Jedi <laughs> tricks, right? Like, what the heck? You're thin slicing. You're you're able to look right. at. I think it was maybe popularized in Malcolm Gladwell's book 
Blink. Oh, um, in Blink, it, yes, yes, I, yes. I yes. think. Don't quote me on it because it's been quite a few years since I read that, but that seems yeah, yeah. to fit, right? Because Blink is all about taking thin slicing, right? You're looking at small about bits of data and with that small data being able to see bigger patterns. And so that's what they're doing. They're looking at small amount of data and predicting bigger patterns. And so for us, we're doing this a similar type thing where in counseling, you're able to assess a counselor's individual um, interpersonal skills and then predict their client outcomes years later. And they did that by exposing counselors to challenging moments in a counseling session. So this is when there are interpersonal potential ruptures. You, you seem to like that word. <laughs> and, and it's how does that individual respond to those ruptures? Do they respond in a defensive manner? Or are they able to um, really generate discussion that helps facilitate outcomes for that particular client? And it generates empathy and creates uh, an emotional bond because ultimately that's the healing ingredient for counseling. It's that relationship between the client and the counselor. And we don't see a significant difference in business setting. The leader, the facilitator, their responsibility is to produce outcomes through the power of relationship between all the people in the team, right? Mm-hmm. So their job is to facilitate those relationships and make sure that everybody's getting along and connecting. That's the whole point of psychological safety. Everybody's able to openly communicate and express their differences and they're appreciated and understood. And so if the leader can model those behaviors with that communication, um, the team's going to be better off and we can assess those. So that using the parallel with the counseling, what we're doing is we're exposing managers to challenging interpersonal moments within a team. And then we say, okay, what do you do here? What would you say? And we can record their response and we can assess their skills and we Mm. can see, are they using language? Are they asking questions that, is are non-judgmental and therefore are accepting of people for their differences, their unique traits and qualities. This seems like a communication style that is ridiculously uh, worth its weight in gold. You know, like it, it seems as if managers, leaders, people who are responsible for creating psychological safety really have to level up their communication skills. And I imagine that you being in the position that you're in, what are the trends that you notice across the nation, across the globe that are, um, that you aim to address? What do you see out there? Well, the good thing is I'm seeing a lot of positive, Uh, trends with managers and leaders. And first of all, I think it starts with the mindset, right? Their mental model for how they as a manager or leader need to lead. And psychological safety is a great mental model. I need to create an environment where everyone on my team has the courage to speak up and the confidence to know they'll be heard. I think a lot of leaders and managers that I'm seeing are thinking along those lines. They might not describe it in the exact same language yeah, and yeah. words that I do, but they, they see that. They want to be managers that are perceived as um, inclusive, as welcoming, as caring, mm-hmm. as curious, etc. You know, fill in the blanks with whatever words you want to use to describe it. But I'm seeing a trend in that manner. And I think there's this uh, also growing trend between kind of a collapsing of mental health and and. Mm work. And I think psychological safety is seen as a bit of a gateway for helping people with their mental health issues. That's not the like measuring 
the mental health and psychological safety are not, they're two different constructs and they're not to be confused. And I think they're related. Mm. And I'm seeing that, right? People are seeing that psychological safety is a means to alleviating the stress and the anxiety and the mental health issues that people are facing and destigmatizing it. Hey, let's at least talk about it. It sounds like there's more of an awareness on this. And I wonder about your view on self-awareness. So if people are not necessarily asking those questions, you know, I don't know that all leaders are that self-aware. You know, if you ask them, a lot of times they do feel like they've got a their finger on the pulse, but they're not necessarily asking or that, you know, it's kind of like everyone thinks they've got a great sense of humor, but not everybody's funny, you know? Um, and so I wonder how you address the self-awareness thing. That is a great question because we do see that. We do see that some leaders don't have that great level of self-awareness. And we like to remedy that with data. <laughs> we try yes. to be as data-driven as possible. And so um, certainly within the world of coaching, what we try to do is always conduct some form of stakeholder analysis, some interviewing the people that are around and work with the leader or manager or individual contributor on a regular basis because they have much better insight into um, well, what they share is how this individual is being perceived. And then you have to ask the leader or the manager or whoever is receiving the coaching, well, how, how do you think you're being perceived? And we try to close that gap. And there's mm-hmm. always a gap. And for those who are particularly, or for those who lack uh, self-awareness, the gap is much bigger. Mm-hmm. And so that takes time. It takes time to reconcile the difference because there's going to be a lot of resistance there um, yeah. where, where that f- person who's not self-aware, they might even justify their behavior and say, well, no, I'm behaving in this way and this is a good thing. For example, um, there's individuals within organizations that cause others to leave. So you mentioned the exit interviews, right? So an sure. organization will see, oh my goodness, we just lost three people because of manager X wow, we need to do something about it. And and so they seek coaching for that particular individual. And, mm. in, and in doing so, um, that person might say, well, it's good that those three people left. I like to turn up the heat in the kitchen. And if they can't handle it, they got to get out. I'm doing the organization right. a favor. Yep. That's, they might perceive it that way. And so having them change their mind is can be a challenge. And despite what I just said about someone feeling maybe virtuous with their, their, uh, ab- abrasive behavior. Yeah. By and large, every leader who is unaware of their impact on others, when it is shone, when the light is shone on them, they feel intense emotion around it, like often guilt, mm. um, and shame and a real desire to improve. That is so interesting. Where do you feel like, organizations are struggling the most is there anything glaring that um that's like trend wise where are people struggling are you asking about managers or are you asking about people within teams like individual contributors at the ceo level does it matter No, it doesn't really matter. I think, you know, I I imagine there are large swaths of people that probably feel a certain way or something that you notice based on the data that you collect where you say, okay, I'm noticing some trends. Here's where we can help. 
with the coaches, with the consultants, with uh, the counselors that you've got um, in your arsenal? I think what we see, perhaps the strongest trend is that the intentions are often really good. Mm. People's intentions have are really good. They want to be perceived in a certain light as being caring and thoughtful, etc. And what's lacking is the skills. So they mm. don't have the skills. They just don't know how to do anything differently than the mm. way they've done it. I'll give you an example. There's one manager we worked with, whip smart, and he used a lot of humor and more specifically sarcasm. And when the organization started to get bigger and bigger and the relationships he had with the people around him got a little bit more distant because they weren't just able to go for lunch all the time, right? That sarcasm started to really hurt him. And yet he didn't, mm. it was like when stress went up, when anxiety goes up, when the stakes go up, that was his go-to, right? His go-to was to be humorous, to be sarcastic, to uh, really motivate people through that mechanism and it started to fall apart like when your buddies and your you know your friend kind of takes a shot at you a cheap shot um you react in a different way right because you know they're friends you know they have your back etc and so that's what i mean so as the relationship started to become a little more distant as the organization grew that strategy couldn't work for him anymore and so i think that's yes. the that's the big problem we're seeing is people don't have the skills, the communication skills to be able to um, adapt based on the environment changing. So I think what's interesting about that is that I've been in technology sales for over 20 years and I loved being an individual contributor. And at one point early in my career, I did go into leadership and my fear was I was afraid that people didn't work like I did. And this was probably 15 years ago. And, um, and that was the case. And I could not figure out how to adapt. I was not a good manager and went back into sales because of it. And I wonder, is it because I'm not a good manager, even though I have a lot of leadership skills, or I just didn't have the tools at the time? And I wonder how you assess somebody's you know, ability to go into leadership or be a leader. Was it that I didn't have the tools or it just was not my thing? Hmm. Well... Uh, it could be a little bit of both. I We definitely think that, well, the way we do it is we measure people's interpersonal skills, right? The facilitative yeah. interpersonal skills. We, we can measure those and we can assess them. So we can give so people cool. a score. Yeah. And so there are some people that are just naturally good at it and they're naturally skilled. And we also know that with practice, you can get better. And you can improve mm -hmm. those skills. So yeah. it's whether, no matter where you are, right? So even if you're skilled naturally, what we find is that often those individuals are unconsciously competent. And we want to bring a more conscious level of competence to it so that they can use the skills when they need to use those skills in a very deliberate Hold manner. Hold up. So unconsciously competent. That's a really cool thing. So it seems like they're unhidden or unearth talents or, you know, like a diamond in the rough kind of thing. Have you seen that there's a lot of underdeveloped talent out there where, where people are just kind of playing in the wrong sandbox? I definitely think so. 100% for sure. Mm. Yeah. So there's potential I, being left on the table by kind of misassessing 
and kind of putting some kind of tools and resources to help identify where their uh, strengths are. Yeah, and maybe it's misassessing and and then being able to provide the other skills to mm-hmm. support them. So the interpersonal skills that we're talking about are um, think of them as a little bit like the well, sometimes we use the language the what and the how. Yeah. So as a let's say you're a first time manager, you need to learn what to do. So some of those things might be, well, you need to have one-on-ones with all of your staff members. That's what, what you need to do. And what questions do you need to ask? Well, it's good to ask these five questions in a one-on-one. And when you're conducting a team meeting, here are some of the things that you need to do. So that's the what, right? You need to teach that stuff. And then there's the how. So it's not just what questions you ask, but how do you ask those questions? What tone do you use? Because someone can tell if you're just saying, okay, so tell me what... Uh, What's the biggest challenge you faced uh, this past month? Oh, yep. nothing. No, not, no. Okay, great. Done. Next. Move on. Right? You see, I'm, I'm just checking the box. I want to get through these five questions as soon as possible. And then I can put a stamp on it and say, I did it. Did the work. Done. Right? And there's a difference between someone's the what. They're doing the what, but then the, the how. Those interpersonal skills, the tone, um, the language they use to ask the questions, how much empathy they express. All that sort of stuff. That's part of the softer skills. And so we think you can learn both of those. And you might have someone that has, they're really high in those soft skills, but they don't know how to do one-on-ones. They've never done that, right? Like they've never managed people. So maybe you need to improve those skills. And then vice versa might be true. You might have someone who's really high in all of the, the what skills because they've been a manager for a long time and they need to work on those how skills because Mm. they've never addressed them. They've never attuned to it. We believe that both can be learned. First of all, can you tell if somebody is like a sociopath from all of these, like a straight up sociopath, if they, if they lack a lot of empathy? Uh, well, you know, an interesting, interesting story, perhaps one of the best stories that we have using our means of teaching people these soft skills was a, a student that had, he was on the spectrum and was trying to improve his ability to read other people's emotions and express empathy. Yes. And because we were able to really break it down into here are the fundamental building blocks of what empathy is and how, what it looks like and how to furrow your eyebrows and, you know, use your, your nonverbals, for example, yeah. to communicate that you get the other person. Oh God, that's so he cool. was able to really improve. Like he was able to go from a, basically a failing student, someone who would not be able to continue in counseling training to someone who became you know, a B student, maybe not an A plus student, but certainly good enough. So what's the point there with someone who's a sociopath? I think that um, if you're just measuring those interpersonal skills, I think some people have it in spades. Doesn't mean they actually have. (laughs) (laughs) They've just become incredibly skilled at being able to communicate it. And similarly, you might have someone who is someone on the spectrum who I think can be sometimes construed as someone doesn't have feelings. I don't think that's true. I think they're just ill-equipped to be able to pick up on a lot of the verbal cues and nonverbal cues that people naturally express within communication. And you you can train it. You can teach it. You can teach people what to look for if they know what to look for. I feel like I could have a field day with all the data that you've got. It sounds so fascinating. So tell me about... New me. Tell me about this coaching thing because I remember I was talking to somebody who 
does executive, uh, not executive, executive coaching, not recruiting, executive coaching. And I asked her, she was talking about like the challenges that people face in organizations. And she said, everybody should have a career coach. Everybody should have non-standardized coaching and counseling to kind of help people identify and move them further along that investing in that would make the hugest impact on the bottom line. Tell me more about what Numi does. So at Numi, we have a couple lines of business. The first is um, for individuals. So we, it's basically a B2C platform where people can source coaches online, find a coach, we'll match them up. And they can hire, hire a coach. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and that's been operating for quite a few years now, well over a decade. And then on the business side, um, we recognize, we had organizations coming to us saying, well, we see you have lots of coaches. Can you recommend and uh, provide us some, with some coaches? Cause we have a bunch of individuals that want coaching. And so that's what we do there. We, we provide coaching to organizations. We, uh, roll out the red carpet to some degree, a lot more than with individuals, because, um, we want to make sure that we provide organizations with kind of a consistent experience and a really high level and quality, um, experience with every one of their coaching leaders or managers, whoever's going through the coaching. And we try to embrace all of the best practices within coaching so that the results are as good as possible. Are you able to measure the results from that, from the the results of the the coaching practices themselves? Yeah. So like I said earlier, we started exploring psychological safety because we were really interested in the impact and how do we measure it. And so we measure it in a couple different ways. We can measure the psychological safety of the team. So is this leader by going through a coaching experience, uh, improving the psychological safety for their team, but also we can measure, um, the from their stakeholders because remember I, I mentioned we collect data at the beginning of the coaching to understand how is this leader perceived and then also how can this leader improve this is a very important question that we yeah. try to identify observable actions so in order for this particular leader to improve we might identify six to twelve observable actions. So these are actions they can take on a daily basis. Maybe it's communicating with eye contact. Maybe it's not raising their voice. Maybe it's um, asking someone, how are you doing? <laughs> it, 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 and, and, and that list of observable actions, we can then check in and see how is this leader doing with respect to observable action number one number two, number three, number four, and we get those stakeholders to give us data. So we, tr- we try to aim, again, it's a seven-point Likert scale where plus three means the individual, the leader is improving dramatically. Minus three would mean they got a lot worse, zero being neutral. And so with the coaching, we're always looking for a behavior change, a behavior improvement of around plus two. Uh, plus three is somewhat unrealistic. Uh, you know, it's hard to get a perfect improvement. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're aiming for like a plus two, 1.7 to 2.3 kind of thing is a nice uh, range for us in a six to nine month coaching engagement. So interesting. I know that I've got a lot of executive coaches, career coaches, life coaches that listen. So Numi is a great N O O M I I, correct? Did I spell that right? Two O. Yep. Two O's, two two I's. I's. So Stefan, what do you know that you wish other people could know? I would say that one of the biggest things that I'm uh, really trying to spread out there is this idea that agreement 
and understanding are different things. So with psychological safety, one of the outcomes that we're really looking for is for managers to model behavior that is curious, that is really open, that is trying to elicit from people their input, right? Because that's what psychological safety is. It's And, and the confounding issue for a lot of leaders is that they feel like, well, if I I seek to get input from people, I have to agree with them. Mm. And that's not the case. We're not trying to have everybody agree. We're trying to have everybody be able to contribute their ideas and concepts and fears and concerns so that better outcomes can be reached. And it's not until you can fully communicate to someone that you understand and you get where they're at, what they're trying to say, that you can achieve better, innovative, creative outcomes. Mm, that's powerful. How can people find you, Stefan? So you can find me on Numi. You already shared the URL. Our psychological safety work is at zarango.com. So that's, uh, we've, we've teased those two services apart. So the psychological safety-based training is all at zarango.com, Z-A-R-A-N-G-O.com. And um, those are the two best places to find me. And even uh, folks can reach out and book a consultation with me or one of my uh, fellow colleagues through both of those platforms. That's great. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. And thanks for talking to us today. This insight has been really valuable. Allison, I appreciate your time. Not to brag on my podcast or anything, but I have to say, I am always leaving these conversations with so much to think about and a big perspective shift that helps me rethink how I show up in the world and start meaningful conversations with the people that matter. I hope you feel the same way. Big thanks to Stefan Wiedner. You can download the Numi Coach Directory app. Uh, Numi again is spelled N-O-O-M-I-I. Or click in the links in the show notes to reach out or leverage his services. If you haven't yet, I'd love for you to consider supporting Culture Changers and me as an independent podcaster. You can hear all the episodes ad-free and get access to bonus content for as little as a few dollars a month. Go visit patreon.com forward slash culture changers. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.